This is not our regular cold open, and the reason for that, and I'm also not your regular host, my name is Bob Terrio, and I quite often edit the episodes of ArrayCast. Now, I'm off on vacation for a few weeks, and as a result, uh, we were looking at ways that we could fill in, because if there's nobody to edit, there's not going to be much of a show to put on. And looking back through the old episodes, one of the things I saw was that the very first episode we did, that a lot of people have never heard, was a really excellent uh, motivating episode. So if you know somebody who is interested in array programming but has not learned about array programming, you might want to steer them towards this episode. If you're a regular listener who has not listened to the first episode, you might want to listen to it just to see how we all started out. But in any case, the following will be uh, an episode about array programming, our first episode, and in two weeks' time, our next episode will be about learning array programming. If you know somebody who's interested in array programming but hasn't yet learned it, these two episodes might be useful for them because they might be a way into learning about array programming, which, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, I think you're probably already in, but this is a way for us maybe to grow the community a bit. So with that, welcome to our first episode of ArrayCast. I want to share with you a tiny origin story that literally no one else in the world knows. There's an example there of a function being applied to a list of strings, cow, sheep, cat, dog. I've often used that list of words in demos and code examples. It comes from a school review in 1965. My friend was introduced. Michael Simpson will now say a few words. Michael walked up to the microphone and said, cow, sheep, cat, dog. All right. Welcome to the first episode of ArrayCast, a podcast about array programming languages and the array programming paradigm. My name is Connor Hookstra. I'll be your host for today and I think all of the following episodes. And we're going to go around and do brief introductions uh, with my three co-hosts. Uh, we'll go in the order of Stephen, Adam, and then Bob. Uh, hello, I'm Stephen Taylor. I learned I was shown APL a long time ago, hundreds of years ago, I think, back in the days of time-sharing services and teletypes. And I immediately liked it better than any other kind of programming I'd ever seen. Uh, I did my first email messages on an APL system, actually written by a guy I'm still working with. I became an APL developer. I moved on to other kind of work, but about 20 years ago, considered I really hadn't had anything like as much fun as I used to have doing um, coding in APL and came back to it. I edited Vector, the uh, Journal of the British APL Association. And for the last few years, I've been the KX librarian working with the Q language, all part of the family. And I am Adam Botsevsky. I have been doing APL for pretty much all of my life. And that means about a third of a century by now. For the last six, seven years, I've been doing it so professionally. I work for Dialog Limited and mainly working on APL tools of various sorts and helping people. And I also do some teaching, create some teaching materials, take care of some social things. 
And I'm Bob Terrio, and I've been playing with Jay. Uh, I'm not professional, I'm just sort of an enthusiast, and I've been playing with Jay for about 19 years. Um, and uh, sort of active in the community, and I've talked to lots of people, participated in conventions, those kind of things. So, um, yeah, I feel like I'm a little out of my league in terms of uh, expertise, but uh, it's a different language, so that's good. If you're out of your league, then I'm I'm drowning. Uh, <laughs> so previously mentioned, uh, my name's Connor. Um, I am completely uh, different than your uh, three co-hosts. I'm a professional C++ developer. I work at NVIDIA on a open source suite of libraries called Rapids, which is basically focused, we're focused on GPU accelerating data science. So I do no APL or J or K or any array programming language uh, professionally or, you know, I, I jumped into this a year and a half ago. So I'm definitely going to be the beginner on this podcast asking all of the questions that hopefully the listeners have. And yeah, so I guess the goal is that we tried to get uh, representation from across, you know, three of the primary array programming languages. Uh, so Adam is sort of representing APL, Bob is representing J, and Steven is representing K, even though um, across the board, everyone's got experiences with uh, these three different languages and other languages. And uh, I'm going to be asking all the questions and learning just as much as the listeners. So I think the idea for today's episode is we're going to each spend three to four to five minutes explaining uh, why we love array programming and or one of the array programming languages. And we're going to go from there. So uh, in the same order that we did introductions, let's start with T Stephen and uh, tell us why do you love the array programming paradigm? It's a lovely question, and I I got asked some years ago to explain this one, and I found it very confronting when I reflected on it, because I was forced to confront that I don't really think of myself as a very serious programmer, although I've spent much of my life uh, being paid to write code. Uh, I know guys who are like deeply into algorithms and efficiency and getting the most out of the out of the iron, and none of that stuff touches me at all when I reflected on it candidly. Um, what I found when I looked into it was I just love the way it looks. And that feels kind of dumb. But you see a really good program on the page, and I love it. And I find that beauty more in the Iversonian languages, in APL, in Q and K, a sort of conciseness, a correctness. Of it. And it's the same kind of joy I get from a really good line in poetry or a really good or a really good piece of poetry, which just, I think, nails it. And you look at it and you say, that's everything that needed to be said on that, and it's completely there. And I get that experience in um, looking at uh, a few lines of APL or K more often than I do um, in, any other in any other language. There's that uh, Leonard Cohen song, isn't it? I came so far for beauty. He's musing on um, how his quest for beauty, uh, I, I left so much behind. I, I practice in my family, his, his work, his, uh, the people he loved. And I thought, yeah, the, it's an aesthetic thing that has pulled me this way. And while at first I thought, that's kind of strange, it's kind of weird. I mean, you know, we program for money, we need to get stuff done, it's a practical thing. Over the years, I've come to think the aesthetic impulse is it drives us in our lives and in our work as developers. We have a sense of rightness. We have a sense of what's fitting, and we rely on it in writing and developing code to guide us to know what we're doing. And I find that's 
for in, very intensely working with the array languages. Yeah, I can't agree more. Uh, one of the most beautiful languages, if not the most beautiful language uh, that I've ever seen is APL. And there's something to be said about J and K as well. But let's hop over to Adam. Why do you love uh, the array programming languages? For me, it's definitely the expressivity. It's um, I have these these patterns in my mind of what I want to do and how I want to do them. And I'm able to to write them down. So for me, APL is very much a language like, like the human languages, like English is. And being fluent in this language and being able to express myself in this language, it just allows me to, to speak out to the computer and write out to the computer what it is I want. And then I get exactly that. I Just like we don't have to to define every nitty bitty detail of of the words that we use when we speak in English, so too I don't have to define all those tiny little pieces for the computer. Rather, I can I can use these blocks very much like playing with Lego, and I put them together, and it just works. That's definitely what what makes it for me. So we have beauty and poetry, expressivity, and just being able to put on the page what you're thinking in your brain. How about you, Bob? Why do you love the array programming languages? Well, I'll, I'll bring math into it. Because um, I, I, one of the big things uh, for me is that they're, they're executable mathematical notations. So you think, well, okay, any programming language is going, you're going to be able to express mathematics with it. And, and that's true. The difference is with, with the array programming languages, the specific things that you're doing with either numbers or, or characters is down to single um, or, or, or small groups of functions and modifiers. And what that means is if I want to add up a bunch of numbers, a string of numbers, I don't need to start writing loops. I don't need to start declaring variables. I don't need to do anything else other than write a plus sign, a forward slash, and a backslash in J. And I've just... Uh, well, in that case, I've actually scanned it. If I just want to add the whole list together, it's just a plus sign and forward slash. And now I've got the total. And it's, you know, it's, it's no harder than writing a sigma on a piece of paper and saying that's what I want to sum up, except now I can put it in a computer and it gives the answer back to me. Not only that, if I want to change the plus to a, a multiplication uh, sign, which in J is an asterisk, now I've got the product. So I don't even have to learn a different way of of expressing adding up a list. I can make multiplying a list. I can make it dividing a list, whatever that would mean. The thing that allows me to do is I will recognize patterns. And and Adam brought up the point about patterns. You start to see patterns. It becomes like a like a telescope would be to a 16th century astronomer. You see quicker these things that are out there, and you think, well, no. I, I, if I multiplied stuff together, I've got, I, I'm aware of how you know. I know how Gauss did it when he was in grade six or whatever. But the point is, is you can actually go in and discover things like that because those patterns pop back at you. And if you want to change it, it's interactive. So you just change it, and you get a different answer right away. And it's amazing how fast that tunes your mind into looking for those kind of patterns. So it becomes. You, you get the advantage of the, you know, the unreasonable uh, effectiveness of mathematics because essentially it's a mathematical language that you get to interact with with a computer and you don't have to do the heavy lifting. The computer does it. Well, I shouldn't say you don't have to do the heavy lifting. You do the really heavy lifting. You're looking for the patterns. 
the computer does the calculations. And I find that's what I love about uh, array programming languages. It's interesting that you say that too, because I can a thousand percent appreciate what you just said, but I feel like until someone actually plays around with a J or a K or an APL REPL where they're, they're typing things in and getting instant feedback, it's, it's like trying to explain the Grand Canyon to someone or even showing them a photo like it, it's, oh, it's, it's just sort of a hole in the ground. Like how, how amazing could it be? But until you're standing at the edge of it, like actually looking at it, you can't fully appreciate um, like how powerful it feels to play with that, uh, with that environment. So yeah, all, all three of those are awesome. I mean, I could spend an hour, but I'm going to keep it to two minutes on, on why uh, very quickly I've fallen in love with um, primarily APL and uh, I'm learning J at the same time. But, um, you know, Ken Iverson, the creator of both APL and J, everyone that is familiar with the languages knows he won a Turing Award in 1979 and his famous paper, Notation as a Tool of Thought, popularized this idea that um, the notation that he's created, which initially wasn't designed to be a programming language, it was n- designed as a notation for explaining algorithms and teaching. Um, it, it affects the way you think. Um, but I think what's not c- completely captured by that I- idea is the extent to which it changes the way that you think. Um, as a primarily imperative you know, C++ developer, I started learning functional languages like Haskell, and, and that definitely changed the way I thought. But then when I went from Haskell to APL, it was like a whole other order of magnitude. And it sort, it sort of speaks to you know, everything that everyone said at this point. You know, Adam mentioned it's, it's the expressivity of it. But the primitives in the language are what I think of as algorithms in C++. Um, but when you're programming in a language like C++ or Python or Java, you, you're reaching for for loops. You're, you're reaching for if statements and while loops and these, and these keywords and building up something that eventually is expressive. Whereas in APL or in J, you're reaching for algorithms. You're reaching for a reduction, a plus operator, a partition. Yes, technically there are, you know, if, you know, uh, you know, keywords and for keywords, I, I basically never use them. Um, and whenever you're solving a problem, you're reaching for algorithms. Uh, there is no better, in my opinion, environment or quote unquote playground uh, to to learn algorithms because that is what the primitives are. And as soon as you're constrained to that, uh, the way that you start solving problems is just, you know, massively different than what you might do in a language, even like Haskell. Like Haskell is my second favorite language after APL. Um, but there's just certain patterns that you're only going to pick up from being forced to sort of think in this like array thinking, this notation as a tool of thought. Um, and on top of that, yeah, it's, it's just the most beautiful language I've ever seen. And uh, it also just makes, like, when everything's a single symbol, like when every primitive is just one tap of the key, like a finger on the keyboard, it changes the way that you you develop. Like, writing an algorithm in C++, it takes multiple lines of code. You know, there's a lot of noise, you know, semicolons, colons for namespaces, parentheses. Um when, once you get something working, you're not going to immediately go back and then try and do six, of, you know, six other ways to solve the same problem because there's, there's so much you know, boilerplate on top of it. Whereas in APL, you solve your problem in like six keystrokes. Okay, maybe I'll go try a couple others because it's only four or five more keystrokes. And it sounds uh, like that's silly, but it actually does change the way. You know, I, I recently gave a talk where I showed eight different ways to solve a problem. I'm not going to do that in a language like C++ because I got tired after solving it the first two. Um, and I just sort of, I, I profiled it and I, I chose the fastest one. But who knows, maybe the seventh solution that was not as intuitive based on my knowledge set, um, was actually the best one, but I never got there. And so at this point, uh, I'll just let anyone jump in and comment on other people's uh, 
you know, answers to the questions and, and we can go from there. The St- uh, Steven said that it's kind of like poetry. Um, and it reminded me there's an, an old article um, from 77 by Alan Perlis called In Praise of APL, A Language for Lyrical Programming. So I guess it's not, you're not at first to think of APL as poetry. That's, that's one of my favorite pa- uh, papers. Um, and I, I forgot to mention, I actually meant to uh, mention Alan Perlis. So for those of you who don't know, I believe he's the first, um, was he the first president of the ACM? Uh, I, I think that's accurate, but he's a very well-respected individual in the community. He also has a quote that says, a language that doesn't change the way you think is not a language worth learning, um, which I think he was saying that with respect to APL, uh, or at least I'd like to think that because APL changes so heavily uh, the way I think about programs. Bob, you were going to hop in and say something. Well, I, I actually, the same sort of thing that Adam was going to uh, mention was about the poetry. I think that it, it is very much like poetry. Other uh, approaches to programming a computer feel to me more like prose. You're sort of adding on things all the time, describing what you're going to do and, and moving through the process. Whereas I find with the array languages, I'm pulling stuff away. I'm trying to get down to that core of what's going to work. And and that core feels to me, an awful lot like poetry because you're starting to become more and more precise with the words you're using and the order you're putting them in. And all these things affect the way, I mean, certain types of poetry, the way it lays out on the page is important. And honestly, when I'm really in the moment and I'm, I'm, I'm programming, um, I get that kind of the same feeling as if I'm trying to be so precise with my language it does the same thing. And you were talking about how you would try something several different ways well, exactly. It gives me that exact feeling because when you're in that flow, you are looking for other ways. Could I change this? Could I change that? And it 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 really draws you into the um, into the art, I think, of programming, which is, is is I find it so neat, so fun. As a New York poet, I like to I like to quote on this, Bob. Uh, it is a privilege. It is a privilege to learn a language, a journey into the immediate. That's Marilyn Hacker. Oh, the family names are, <laughs> so I'm sure. <laughs> what year? Maybe that's where Hacker comes from. Uh. <laughs> I, I'd like to pick up on what you were saying, uh, Connor, about um, the boilerplate and the noise. So I get this feeling of like quietness when working with APL. Just like Bob was saying, I'm just working with the core of the problem. I don't have to generate all this distracting stuff. Well, I, I once heard a, a C programmer say, well, I don't really get this thing about getting rid of loops. I can write loop for loops in my sleep. It's sort of like, yeah, we'd like you to wake up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's funny you mentioned that, actually. It... Uh... I have the responsibility for for some code that um, part of it generates some APL code in a proposed extension to the language. You're talking about somebody being able to write for loops in their sleep. Uh, Somebody reported a a couple of edge cases that uh, were buggy in my code. And I looked at at the code that I've written. Uh, It's about 150 lines or so. And it was complicated, complicated stuff. I went to sleep and I had a dream. 
and and in the dream told me how to approach this a whole different way than I had done before. So I, I woke up, I sat down at the computer at six o'clock in the morning, and by noon I had rewritten the whole thing from scratch. Pretty much nothing. I kept like seven lines of code that were kind of tendential to that, um, and it was all correct. It passed the QAs um, like that. So sure, you can write four loops in your sleep, but I can write entire correct programs in my sleep. That, behold the power of expressivity in APL. I could remember enough details from a dream to just go and write it down. I'm always amazed how much um, programming I do in my sleep. And it literally is that sort of a thing. I'll have, I'll have worked you know, through the day on something and... When I say work through the day, when I'm programming, I'll, I'll, I literally play. I go in and I'll try something out and try something different, try a bunch of different ways. And it's just like the way I know it's not working is if I keep adding things. Honestly, I, if, if, if I just keep adding things to fix this part of it, I know in the end it'll work, but it's not, it's not actually. I haven't got to the core of it. I had a, I had a math prof that said once the... The solution to, you know, mathematical proofs or understanding a mathematical problem is to strip away everything else that's not the problem, and then you have the solution. And I think that there's so much of that that's true. When you play with it for a while, and I guess it gets back to this playing part, you play for play with it a while, you're seeding your mind with all the different things. If you don't recognize them consciously, subconsciously, you pick them up. You go to bed. I, often I wake up about 5 in the morning thinking, oh, I could do, I could do this. And then, and then it's a struggle to get back to sleep because I want to jump upstairs and start hacking and find out. And, and what I found is more effective is actually thinking about it for a little bit, going back to sleep, getting up, and then, and then I've got energy. I can go at it, and, and sometimes it's right and sometimes it's wrong. But that's the nature of, of looking for patterns. You don't always get them. The nice thing about the array language is you can tell really quickly whether you're on or off. And if you're on, you can chase it down pretty fast. Yeah, there's a um, Rich, Richard Park, who's going to be a you know a recurring co-host on on this podcast. Uh, he has a YouTube channel, and he does a thing where he solves these Perl weekly challenges every once in a while, and, and just records it. And his goal is not at all to show the optimal solution; it's just to show you know what it's like to iterate and build up a solution really quickly. And uh, so many of the times what I do afterwards is I follow it along, I, I type along with them, and then I will, I will like start stripping away and trying to replace. And like there's, I'm going to make a YouTube video at some point uh, that shows that he has this really long expression and you can remove like 12 characters with a single max scan. Um, and uh, it's the, the videos are still amazing because you're, you're seeing someone that knows the language and, and how they sort of navigate it. But that's this sort of this topic is that you're you're trying to strip stuff away until like certain times you'll look at a solution and I'll be I'll think in my head, this is not optimal. Like it's just there's too much APL here to be solving what is a very simple problem. And I just need to go and think about it for, you know, an hour a week uh, and, and just sort of like in the back of my head, you know, how could I do this separately? And that's the thing is because I'm on my APL learning journey. 
uh, I started off by just knowing just the basics, the reduces, the scans, uh, you know, the reverses. And then every once in a while, I'll learn one of the new uh, primitives that I just haven't learned. Like the probably the most impactful one that I learned recently was key, which is an operator. So it's a higher order function. It's similar to like a SQL group by or a group by from a functional language. And, you know, so previously, if I needed to find the maximum uh, occurring element in a list, I'd do some sort and then uh, a grouping with a, you know, are the adjacent elements equal and it was beautiful i thought oh my god this is uh, in like six characters i can build up what you know you you spell out the algorithm in another language and it's more characters to spell out that algorithm than just building it up with the primitives in apl and then fast forward like six months and i discover key and i'm like oh my goodness there's like a whole single character that you can use to like reduce that you know seven or eight uh, characters that i had and so it's you know apl j um i'm sure you can say the same thing about k it, while you're learning it, it's a, it's like the what you start off with is so powerful, and then you just continue to add to that. You know, Jay, I discovered under which you know, I'm sure we can talk about in a, a future episode. Uh, but it's just when you when you need that certain thing and it's there, it's just so beautiful because it it s- simplifies the solution that you have even further. And like Stephen said, it just ends up looking like poetry at the end of the day. And it's it's hard to like. It's hard to explain <laughs> over a podcast, uh, but believe me, it, it is beautiful. <laughs> uh, under is one of my favorites, too, because I always think of it as the tire change algorithm. Is you, you, you jack up the car, you change the tire, and then you let the car down. Well, under, you, you do one operation, you do what you're going to do to it in the middle, and then you reverse the first operation. And it's it's so often used in so many things. Like in your life, you do that all the time. You know, you open a drawer, you put a, a spoon away, and you close the drawer. It's just over and over and over again. And and then you can incorporate this idea into mathematics. And it's it's it's, in, it's incredible how powerful it is. I, I really like the case of surgery under anesthesia. We literally say that in English, right? And and then you wake the patient up again. That's the undoing of the action. But it's there all the steps. We don't think about it. But this is our whole life is like this. Open the refrigerator, take out the food, close the refrigerator. That's you're taking it out under opening the refrigerator. But even heart surgery under cutting up the chest, it needs to be sewn together back afterwards under anesthesia. You can use multiple of them. And these kind of it's again that that. The Lego blocks, it just they just they're made so perfectly. They just fit together snugly, and you just know that this is the right way of building it. And and it becomes so irritating when you have that tool in an array programming language. And then I go back to my you know day to day. I get paid money to develop in C plus plus, and then I hit that pattern. And then what do I do? I I just sort of am, I sit there sadly, and I, I I code the transformation, then I do the operation, and then I manually uh, undo it. Um, and uh, so many times, it's just like I, I love C plus plus, very powerful language. There's a reason it's been as successful as it's been. Um, but just the, the joy of being able to reach for something that's the exact thing you need um, when you go to certain other languages, you sort of uh, you have. What's the word? Like jealousy, envy? Yeah, I definitely have that. Sometimes I have to write some JavaScript. And inevitably, I, I hit the same problem. I, I know exactly how I would do this in APL. 
and it's just long winded thing in JavaScript. And, and my JavaScript surely looks very unusual. It has, it says dot map all over the place and dot for each and whatever not. And, and one long line of code. And it just comes from, from frustration of not being able to express myself. I, I know what it is I want, but I, there are no words for it. It's not like I can't find the words for it. There are no words for it. It's like translating poetry. <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to fit your words into, into another language's poetry. And it's, it's, I guess the good thing is you, you, know the, you know what you're trying to do with it, right? The fact that the other language might not be able to do it quite as, as fluently, but you do know what you're getting at, which is to me a lot of the times the, the tool of thought is that you can, it creates the thoughts that you need. And then from there, you've got a language that can actually execute those thoughts. So one thing that I'm, I'm, I'm sure that at this point, I'm not sure what percentage of our listeners are 30 minutes into the first episode of a podcast on array programming languages, and they've heard all of us uh, gush about how beautiful the language is. And the first thing I heard about APL and friends uh, was that it was the most unreadable programming language. It's, a, it's sometimes joked about as a uh, write-only language. Um, and yet... We've just talked for, for 30 minutes about how expressive, how beautiful, it's like poetry. Uh, I'm pretty sure our, our listeners are just completely confused on either what we're smoking uh, or, <laughs> or like how this is possible. Like what, what has caused this dichotomy of uh, people that are using the language just falling in love with it and then everyone else that's looking in commenting that, oh, it's, it's just line noise. How can we convince all of our listeners uh, that what we're saying is there is really some beauty here, and it's it's not unreadable line noise. Um, well, when you can read it, you write fewer tests, and there's a, that's a, a serious bottom line you get from it. Um, so years ago, I was talking to Kent Beck about extreme programming, a, a methodology which he codified, which relies heavily upon the use of tests, and. Um, I, I said, okay, so what do you write tests for? This is like one of those Zen questions. And he said, anything you think might break. Anything you think might break. Fair enough. So when I look at my code, what do I think might break? When I see 2 plus 2, I know that's going to evaluate to 4. I don't need to write a test for that. I need to write a test potentially for anything that I cannot see is correct. And when you write at the high, higher level of abstraction that you get in the Iversonian language is you can see certain things are correct. You use iterators to run through arrays and whatever. You don't need to test that. The interpreter's got it completely cold. So you write fewer tests. Adam, Bob, do you want to add uh, what your take is on why, you know, if you've been learning J for, what is it, 15 plus, close to 20 years, Bob? What you, why were you not running away when you just saw punctuation uh, instead of words? I, I think the biggest thing initially was just uh, to play around with language and see what you could do with it. And and certainly with J, there's, there's sort of a because uh, I guess it's digraphs, you, you often your, your beautiful single characters in APL become two characters and the second character is an inflection, which is either a period or a, or a colon 
in J. And so you get a lot of periods, a lot of colons, and it, it, it does start to look a bit like line noise. But when I was a kid, we used to go down uh, in Vancouver to Chinatown to have Sunday dinners. My dad was had a lot of friends who were in the Chinese community, so they would tell you where the best chefs were. And when you go down to Chinatown in Vancouver then, now it's a little bit even a bit more widespread, but then when you walked in, you, all everything that was written was in Chinese. The menus on the on the uh, at the restaurants were written in Chinese, and if you don't read Chinese, that is incomprehensible. It's just like I don't get this. But obviously, people can understand it if they read the language, and they can read it as any other as easily as any other language. And and my sense of particularly array programming languages, they're so. Um, they're so short that you can you can keep a lot of ideas together in a relatively short space of time, which makes it actually easier to understand. So, as much as somebody who doesn't un, doesn't read the language would look at it and go, "That's to, you can't get that out of that," but if you get the chance to actually practice and learn the language, and there's actually not that many characters, you know, that you have to learn what they do. There's a lot of. Uh, the, one of the things I like about the language is there's always a lot of little surprises how they'll take a character and use it in a different way. And you go, I had no idea you could, you could do that. I mean, we talked about under. Under is one of those things. You, 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 you see under, and then you see under happening all over the place, and now you see all the places you could use it. First time it's explained to you, you go, oh, that's kind of neat. But by the time you get into it, that pattern starts to build. And then when you see under in a piece of code, you know exactly what's going on. And it, it becomes actually easy to read, but you have to learn the language before it becomes easy to read. And because it's so different than what, you know, the, the more uh, traditional programming languages are, it's easy for somebody to look at it and go, yeah, well, I, I already know how to do this. But, and you do in a different way. But as you said about Perlis's quote, if, if it's not changing the way you think, is it really worth learning a new one? You can pick up a lot of traditional languages, you know, moving between Python and C and Basic and any other, you know, those type of languages. You start to get into Lisps and and uh, and object-oriented languages, and it is changing the way you think a bit. But I find even more so with with array languages, they really, as I said, they have this connection to mathematics that I find really attractive, and it 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 tends to focus your mind. It, it seems like there's an analogy in there too to. Um... Like when you start to learn the digraphs or the APL symbols, you start to recognize patterns the same way that when we're reading a book, we don't we don't spell out, you know, H-E-L-L-O in our brain. And then, OK, that that's hello. I know that word like our our brain is capable of recognizing those five letters juxtaposed next to each other and instantly knowing the meaning of it. Um, we don't have to work through character by character, parse that, put it together as a word and then find the meaning of it. Um you know, that's actually how we re learn to read as children. Um, we, we, you know, take our finger by character, we spell out the word, we sound it out. Um, but that's that's when you start. Once you can actually read the language, you, you read very quickly, and you're even able to read and sort of decipher the meanings of words you've never seen before, um, which, which there's probably an analogy there. Adam, do you want to hop in on what your take is on the unreadability versus poetry of, of these languages? Sure. I mean, I'm a little bit not qualified to answer because... I grew up with APL much like, say, a child in China grows up with Chinese, and it's not foreign. Right? So, 
How is that possible? How come I, what? <laughs> well, <laughs> How did I, you I'm, grow up with APL? <laughs> yes, I did. My, my father was a great APLer. Um, and, and I was shown, I mean, I, I was taking along for, for two APL conferences at an early age and, and I would sit on my father's lap as a toddler and then you would do APL and just building it up. So there's no, there's, there's no real date when I started doing APL. It's just like, it was always there. And so it, the symbols were never foreign to me. Um, and then much with the same thing as we were saying with, with Chinese, um, there's a it, there's a false sense of um, familiarity when when somebody who says knows in English or other um, European languages see a text written in Latin letters, um, they recognize those symbols, and any other symbols would appear very foreign. So, say an Englishman looks at an old English text written in runes, looks very foreign, even though the language is actually pretty close to what he's used to. Um, and then you can take um, a language like um, Maltese, which is closely related to Arabic, but it's written in English letters, right? Latin letters. So you'd get a false sense of, oh, this is, this is immediately familiar, but it's false because the language is entirely different, has nothing to do with it. Let, letters might more or less mean the same thing, or they might not. Right? There's a... Um, even taking a letter in English like like J and and V, and then you go to German that have the same letters, but they have entirely different meanings in those languages. So here too, it's a it's a matter of just being more open minded and saying these these symbols can mean something. And it's, it's, I guess it's a cultural thing because we are very used to symbols. If you look around you, people look at your smartphone. Increasingly, interfaces are replacing words with icons everywhere. They're just little stylized symbols that often are not very good illustrations for what they stand for. Right? The, the, the home icon might just be a triangle these days or a circle or, or three, three horizontal lines is for a menu. It's, but it's like taking the essence of an idea and boiling it down. And that's really what originally Chinese characters are too. And if you look at APL symbol especially, but also to a quite a degree for... Uh, for J and also for, for K, the symbols are, are paired up with the functionalities, maybe not in a way that you can just go and pick up, but if somebody points it out to you, then you never forget what, the, what it means. They're mnemonic in that sense, just like the symbol at the train station that tells you where to go for various things. It, and as a little child, you learn them, or you know what the stop sign means. Right? There's nothing in a circle with a horizontal bar that tells you you can't go. But once you know that, it just sticks with you. It just connects with something. Um, so I think it's a very much like people are afraid of going out of their comfort zone. But once they do and they open their mind and they see the beauty, that's when they're sold on it. Yeah, there's that's one of the things that I that you know in my first couple days of experimenting with APL that I just absolutely fell in love with the language because in mathematics we or we, you know, those that created the symbols for certain binary operations, they we drew lines in the sand at where we stopped. So everybody knows that, you know, plus is a cross and minus is a, a flat hyphen. 
Um, and then we have multiplication, which then it actually gets a bit confusing because in the textbooks as children, it's an X. But then when we get to programming, you know, there's we can't use X because that's also a, you know, alphabetic character. So we actually use an asterisk instead. Um, and then division. Uh, well, we have to come up with, you know, there's the two dots with a hyphen in between, but that also doesn't exist on the keyboard. So now we have to use slash, but that's not a character. So we can use it because it's punctuation. But so the point is, is that there's minus subtraction division multiplication we typically have a symbol uh for writing that on paper when we're in elementary school and then also for typing it uh on a keyboard but what about two very other common mathematical operations minimum and maximum like we just arbitrarily decided that those don't get symbols um which like you don't really ever pause to think about that. Like it's just what we're taught. And so we just take it. Okay. That's fine. Um, but like, why, like, why, why did we stop? Like we were, you know, common binary operations and min and max. We just said, no, uh, those ones you have to write out min and max. Um, and then Ken Iverson in the fifties, he saw this and I'm not sure if he was the first person in the history of the world to have this thought and said like, okay, that's nonsense. Um, and so he created two symbols to represent min and max. Um, and uh, I was building up a slide decks once where I, I wanted to put all these binary operations and I had the nice symbols and then I got to min and max and I was like, oh, wait, I got to type, type min and max out three characters. And it looks so asymmetric that these first four binary operations is just a single character, a single thing to represent it. Um, and and that, that is, that's, that's just one example. But uh, Ken Iverson, I think, is, has noticed that across, you know, different domains in math that we just sort of, we drew the line at some point, oh, you know, sum, sum, summing a bunch of numbers gets capital sigma. Multiplying a bunch of numbers gets a capital pi. Any other, you know, iteration with a binary operation? No, nah, no, those don't get symbols. We're going to stop there. And, and he recognized this stuff and he fixed it in his notation, which later became a language. But, um, yeah, it's, it's APL makes you, or array programming languages in general, it, it, it makes you sort of wonder, you know, why did actually we, did math make these decisions? And uh, in my opinion, fixed, fixed a lot of it. It's, it's unfortunate. It didn't get adopted by all education systems, in my opinion, because I find complex math um, or whatever domain you're, you're thinking about, linear algebra, et cetera, it's easier to think about in terms of APL notation than it is to actually think about it in the notation that that domain provides you with. That's just my take. But Yeah, even order of operations, right? You know, the fact that the order of operations are consistent in APL and it's just, if you want to change that order of operations, you just parenthesize. Um, otherwise, they go exactly the way they always do. You don't have to worry about head mass or whatever kids learned in, in elementary schools. Yeah, yeah. Some of it did get adopted, though. Iverson was a mathematician, and he, he started off by just making suggestions as to how normal mathematical notation could be improved. And um, today, it's fairly common to see floor and ceiling written with in notation that he used for it. And even um, even conditionals being so so predicates mapping to zero and one by putting him into square brackets is used on occasion. Also something he came up with, and that became an integral part of APL and J and K. They all agree on this, that uh, any kind of predicate returns to zero or one. In a sense, APL is evolution. It's not, it was never somebody sat down and said, hey, let's make a new programming language. It's just a natural evolution of where math over centuries had added symbols for more and more things. 
Um, it's, the, it's a natural conclusion. What, what's kind of interesting to me is it, it, it sort of took a lot of the mathematical symbols that have grown over time in history, and it broke them apart so that you could take plus and another modifier and you, you'd get sigma, but then you could do the same thing. You didn't need two separate symbols for, you know, summation and, and multiplying out a list. You just change the, the one little, in the case of J, we call them verbs, the one little verb that does the work and you modify that, change the verb and you change the way the whole thing works. By splitting it up, you can use those combinations Adam was saying before, it's like Lego blocks. You literally can put a different Lego block with something and you get a very different result. I think that's a power of it as well. All of these languages take concepts and generalize them. And the power of generalization is then there's less to learn. If you, if you learn in mathematics that a huge sigma means summation, and one day you see a huge pi, you have no clue what it means. There's no indication. But if you learn that plus slash means summation, and then one day you see something new you have never seen, it says multiply slash, you know immediately that then this is a product. Or maybe not immediately, but you can at least make a good guess that that's what it's doing. Uh, if, if you know that the slash and the plus slash is the reduction part of that operation. Okay, so if, you, if you've seen plus slash and you've seen time slash, then one day when you see and slash, you will know that it means all of them right? well i think i think this is something that um potentially like array programming language programmers or developers they they take for granted um of how explicit uh you know k q um j and apl that they, they, they all make this this is that when you see a reduction it's expl- it's right there it's explicit um maybe you could argue from the q point of view because they've wordified it that um it's not as explicitly clear, but they, they make a, it's, there's a beautiful pattern in Q that the scan always ends with an S of the reduction form. So if you have a reduction that's a plus reduction, it's sum, and then the scan version of that is sums. And if you, same thing for min and mins, and max and maxes. Um, when, when I, that was one of the other things, like in the first couple of days when I, when I fell in love with APL. Like coming from uh, C++, there was a point in time where I had not made the connection between the different algorithms accumulate, which is uh, by default it does a sum uh, a sum reduction, but you can you can pass it a custom binary operation to do a multiplies reduction, etc. But we also have algorithms like min element, max element. Um, we have another one called count if, which counts uh, the number of elements that satisfy a unary predicate. There's all these differently named algorithms that there's absolutely nothing explicit that they are reductions. It's just an observation you have to make. And there was a point in time where the idea of a reduction was not something that I knew. I, I didn't study computer science. I was not a computer science major. And even if I was, I'm not sure if that's something that's covered in an algorithms course. Usually it's they're doing divide and conquer. They're not actually you know doing these sort of functional higher order algorithms. Um, and, and so at, at some point... I realized, oh, yeah, because I watched a talk by uh, one of my favorite speakers, Ben Dean, who he has a talk called The uh, Algorithmic Empire or something like, Stood Accumulate, The Algorithmic Empire. Uh, I apologize if I got the name slightly wrong. And it shows how of the 90 algorithms in an algorithm header, like 77 of them are implementable in terms of a reduction. And that was where I was like, oh, wow, this, this idea of a reduction, like they're everywhere. And it wasn't until I went to APL 
where you, when you see a summation or a, 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 a product, it's, there's always a slash. It's right there. Like you can't, you can't have a reduction <laughs> without that slash, um, which seems like a small thing. So as Adam was saying, you know, oh, it's just, it's, you're obviously going to recognize it. But like coming from a language where that's not explicit, which is like almost uh, every, every language. I mean, so you could argue a lot of functional languages where you have generic folds and generic reduces. Like it's obvious from that point of view. Um, but like Python, for instance, it has a reduce, but primarily you're using the custom sum and the custom uh, PROD for product functions. It's not explicit. And I basically made that observation from learning APL, which uh, I think that there's probably like a whole category of things that APL and J developers, um, they just sort of take take for granted. And then I come in, and I'm, holy smokes, this is amazing. And everyone's like, okay, yeah, that's that's like basic 101 stuff. Like why, that's not even, that's not even why we love the language. <laughs> that's just like, that's just like children's play. Um, and I'm just like, well, this is, this is great. Um, so that was a, a little bit of a ramble. We should start to wrap up. So this episode we talked about you know why we love this paradigm and and these languages potentially in our second uh, episode if you are intrigued and want to learn more we'll dive in uh, a little bit to um, what makes apl different than uh, j different than k different than q and even other array programming languages uh, but are there are there any last comments and thoughts that uh, folks want to say before we uh, provide people with some resources and, and sign off for our first episode so you're saying we're going to do this again we'll see we'll see uh we'll take a look at the stats uh honestly i personally even if we have zero listeners uh i know i'm gonna learn a ton from from these meetings so i'm happy to do another one uh but all of us are gonna have different bars uh my bars is at the ground level um (laughs) you just have to step over it (laughs) It, it's generally not a good idea with podcasts to have a have a goal of zero listeners but that's (laughs) I like to set the bar low so I can uh, overachieve very easily. Um, no, I with Connor on this, not the goal of zero, not zero listeners as a goal, but if we are finding this interesting enough to enjoy the conversation, it's worth doing. Oh, and hopefully others will uh, will enjoy as well. Um, I my, my assertion is that there are a ton of folks that have heard of APL or heard of J or heard of K or Q, um, or just this paradigm in general, and that are would love to passively listen while going for a walk or, or doing the dishes or while driving to and from work, whenever we go back to driving to work, if that ever happens again, um, this is being recorded in 2021, uh, mid COVID. Um, but, uh, they might not be curious enough to go and spend a weekend trying to figure out what do these symbols mean? Um, but they're, they're curious enough for sure to just passively listen to some folks that are super excited about the technology. And, and hopefully we, we managed to attract some of that crowd. Well, I would say the only the only thing with J to remember, if you're looking to find out more about it, don't do a search of J because you're not going to find it. <laughs> God, just start with J software, all one word, and and that'll get you into the site for J. But, but J on its own, it's kind of the curse of the one letter languages. It's you have to figure out a way to get into them, and the first trick is not to search for the letter because it's unlikely you're going to find it. APL's got a bit of a jump on us there. Even even APL, uh, when I you, there's a popular athletic clothing, I think athletic propulsion lab or something that uh, half the time I search for APL and I'm like, why am I looking at shoes right now? Um, 
But we'll, maybe we'll kick this over to Adam because you've got, I think, a list of uh, resources or links that if folks want to, you know, even before they get to the next episode, go and check out these languages. Where, where should they go uh, to satisfy their curiosity? Yeah, well, um, recently uh, I, together with, with a bunch of friends, um, overhauled an old site called the APL Wiki. And you can now find it on just apl.wiki. Um, and even though it's obviously APL-centric, it does have also articles about uh, Q, K, and, and J, and it has links to everywhere. So I think that's it's enough of a portal, just APL.wiki. And then um, you can take it from there, basically. And there are, there are links from the front page to all kinds of things. I, um, there's a there's a link to something called introductions, and it has it's a, just a list of various people presenting their thoughts. There's an amazing article by called "Discovering APL," written by somebody named Stephen Taylor. Highly recommended. Um, and there are also links to where you can you can try it out, and very, lots of examples of things. It's mainly on APL, but then there are links to to K and J as well. All right, so APL Wiki for starting portal, Google J software for J, uh, also code.kx.com slash Q for Q if you want to go straight to the Q source. Um, I'd just like to jump in if I could and remind people that if you enjoyed this first episode of ArrayCast and you'd like to get in touch with us, you can send us an email at contact at ArrayCast.com or tweet us at, at ArrayCast. And for more information on the Array languages, you can visit ArrayCast.com. And there's a resource page there for background on the Array languages. And if you enjoyed our podcast as much as we did, then head over to iTunes and give us a rating. It really does make a difference in how many people will find out about the podcast and helps to spread information about the array programming languages. We'll sign off. Thanks, everybody, for spending uh, an hour of your your day uh, listening to us ramble about this uh, esoteric paradigm that hopefully... Um, we'll catch a few listeners to get to get interested because um, if you want to be a programmer poet, this is the way to do it. Um, all right. Thanks, everyone. And uh, we'll hopefully see you in the next episode. So that was our first episode of ArrayCast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. And you may have noticed that our signature sign-off, Happy Array Programming, was not on the first episode. Perhaps I'm going to make that a, a future question for some prize or something if we ever go down that road and start awarding prizes. But just to be completionist, for now, happy array programming. Next, in two weeks' time, we'll do uh, a podcast on learning the array programming languages, and I hope you join us for that. And then, and that will be a new one, and then we will continue on with this this journey that we're all on and sharing of exploring the array programming languages. Happy array programming. <laughs> <laughs>